0: You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
2: Yesterday we were talking about that there'd be more tourists ended up in hospital following an altercation with young people on the streets of Dublin at the weekend. And of course I mentioned that while we were on air there was a teenager who was going to be before the the juvenile courts yesterday in connection with that unprovoked and what has been described as an extremely violent attack and robbery of uh, um, those three English lads in Dublin's Temple Bar. Well it turns out it is a 17 year old. We didn't know what age uh, he was and obviously the fact he's under 18 he's a minor so he can't be identified but he he entered the courtroom yesterday sobbing rubbing his eyes and he cried throughout the uh, case and he was accompanied by his uh, mother he has been left out now on uh, bail and of course the guard the are trying Uh, to move it up into a higher court and of course if it goes to a higher court he could get a much, much longer uh, sentence but he was picked up on CCTV because he was not only involved in the attack on these three uh, men but he was the one who reached into one of the one of the 20 years, one of the English lads was on the ground and he managed to get his wallet out of his pocket and then he was seen on CCTV going into Centra uh, where he tried to use the card but when the people in the shop must have got a bit suspicious and they asked him to enter a pin and uh, it, it, he couldn't, he refused and then uh, he left and it turned out to be the one of the English guys' uh, cards that he tried to use. Anyway, he's before uh, the courts, but he sounded like he was very, very upset when he was before the courts yesterday. But of course the big one uh, since that and the case of the American Stephen uh, Termini who I'm glad to report is starting to make a recovery. Now whether uh, how he will be affected for the rest of his life, only time I suppose uh, will tell. But of course that led to particularly when the American tourist got attacked uh, because that went... It got international coverage and it really shone a bad, bad spotlight on Dublin when it comes to anti behaviour at night and that led to Helen McEntee, the Justice Minister, giving an extra £10 million to the Gardaí in Dublin just for that area in and around the city centre for overtime. But of course the problem that a lot of the rank and file Gardaí will say is we don't have enough Gardaí. We need more numbers. We're having a problem with retention. Gardaí that are there don't want to stay there. Uh, there's obviously the the normal retirements that you'd have every year and then there's even a problem with the recruitment gone are the days when there would have been hundreds, tens of hundreds of times of young people who would apply to join the Gardaí. It doesn't seem to be the career anymore that a lot of people are choosing and there's been a lot of campaigns that the Gardaí, the management of the Gardaí have had to to do to try to encourage more young people and not even young people, it, it doesn't even have to be people straight out of school. I mean, right, I think it's 35 is the cut off age, but they're trying to get people to look at it as a career choice, people who may, maybe already had started careers. And they're saying why well, not give the guardie uh, a go. So really head scratching, I think, for a lot of people, the news. And I did mention it yesterday that three trainee guardies were sent home because they had tattoos somewhere on their body. Now, there's more information coming out from one of these because one of the trainee Gardaí is speaking with Kevin Foy in the Irish Independent today. Now obviously he is remaining uh, nameless but he's talking about the fact that he was sent home from Templemore Garda uh, College after he was told it's a tattoo that's on his hand and he was told he doesn't comply with the forces dress and uniform uh, code and he feels he's been treated very unfairly. Now he's a 32-year-old, he's actually from Munster, He's a father of one and he's now back home applying for other jobs. And he wasn't the only. There was also two female Garda cadets who were also asked to go home. Um, um, And they've had their training deferred pending their compliance with the uniform and dress code within Garda shiakona. So this the the male here, the, the 32 year old has given an interview to uh, Kevin Foy and uh, he, the former recruit who was forced to leave after just one week, says he feels very deflated, very disappointed with the whole situation. Now, he explained that he had left a long term job. He had been working as a retail store manager, always wanted to become a member of Angarda Siakona. He gave up the job in retail. Very excited, he said, very motivated to enter Templemore for the training. And he sounded like somebody who was really looking forward to getting stuck in uh, to the job. He said he knew there would be challenges and obstacles along his career, guard the career path, but he said, The last thing he thought of would be that it was anything to do with the tattoo on his hand. The three trainees were sent home. They were among 175 recruits who were undergoing induction. The process of getting to Templemore, though, that took about 18 months. And this is the one that I'm really querying. It included multiple assessments, but it also included interviews. And he pointed out that in all of those interviews and in all of those interactions that it's a tattoo of a lion. It was visible on his hand. And there's a picture of it in some uh, in the Irish Independent uh, today. And you can quite clearly see that there is this lion on his uh, hand. And he said when he had assessments and when he had interviews, Senior Gardi would have been involved in some of those interviews and assessments, he said nobody ever expressed any concern about this tattoo on his hand. And it wasn't that he was trying to uh, hide it. Now, there is a story about the lion and the tattoo on his hand. He got it as a tribute to his five-year-old son who bravely fought a rare kidney disease which required the child to undergo extensive hospital treatment. And it was all during the COVID pandemic. And I suppose... They went through so much, he felt like his little boy had fought it like a lion. So he decided to, in honour and in memory of that time, to get this tattoo on his hand. Now, the would-be Gardaí uh, previously did have a tattoo on his neck, but he had that removed because he was aware of the subject of t- t- tattoos in the Garda uniform and dress code. And if you look up the Garda uniform and dress code, the information booklet states body art, in brackets, tattoos, on the face, are visible above the collar, are not permitted. All other tattoos will be covered at all times when on duty, whether in uniform or in plain uh, clothes. So it was on this basis that he believed the... He knew he would to get the one off his neck and he got that removed, but he thought the one on his hand would be fine because he believed he would be complying with the, co- with the code and that he was going to wear a cover on his hand while uh, on duty, which would hide the image. And he has a photograph taken of without a cover where you can see the line. And then he has this cover over it and you wouldn't even know there was a tattoo uh, under it. Uh, Now, he says if he is to be accepted back into training, it seems he would have to have the tattoo removed. Now, he said because the tattoo is large, it covers his entire hand. That would take about a year. And so he'd have to put his life on hold for that year while he's having the tattoo uh, removed. Also is quite costly. It costs €2,000 approximately. He reckons about 20 very painful sessions would be needed. And even after the 20 painful sessions and paying approximately €2,000, uh, there's no guarantee that even after it all, all, that he would be accepted back into the the because it might look very unsightly if you get a large tattoo removed it can look almost like a scar sometimes so i don't know if they would accept that uh, or not he he said he was treated very well by the staff in temple moor who dealt with him and he said they were very respectful over the issue but he does believe the decision determination training was made by senior guard that management he doesn't believe was made by the staff in Temple Moor and it's left him now very deflated and a big knock to his uh, confidence. He's gone on to describe the tattoo policy as very vague not progressive, and he says, "Not very inclusive and I did hear the guard the representative association president brendan O'Connor. I did hear him speak out on it yesterday, and he's calling on the guard the management to review the policy. He says it does seem that perhaps the policy is slightly out of step and is robbing the organization now of three people who had the potential to be excellent members of Angar the Shia by the way, in the case of the two female uh, cadets, one. cadet Had a tattoo behind her ear while the other had a tattoo on her neck. Now, I suppose that does directly go against uh, the code and what's in the information booklet, but if they're smaller tattoos, they may be able to get those uh, removed, but this is a rather large uh, tattoo. So yeah, I mean, do we need to move with the times, particularly if we're trying to encourage people? Because you could have somebody at eighteen, nineteen, or twenty who decided to get a tattoo, and then when they go into their twenties, might decide, "Yeah, I'd like to. I, I I would like to become a member of Vanguard the Sheikona, but because of the tattoo, they won't be allowed in." Your thoughts? Welcome to it. I mean, if you were interacting with a member of Vanguard the Shia corner how would you feel if somebody had a tattoo on their hand now I did say when I mentioned this yesterday I don't know about a full face the other way you could get full face uh, tattoos and, and and I know in some countries that's very socially acceptable and in, in some uh, ethnic cultures you know they see that very much as works of, of beauty um but I'm, I I don't know if that would quite be acceptable here, but to have tattoos anywhere else on the body, particularly if this man said that he could cover it, or in the case of the two female cadets, to have a tattoo behind the ear and a, a tattoo on the neck, um, Is it the right or wrong or is it a policy that Angarda Siakona need to change? Mixed response coming in by text and calls to the Garda, sending home three uh, young recruits because they had a tattoo. Somebody says, Priti, this is ridiculous. Sending home trainees because of tattoos and then saying we've got a shortage of members of Angarda Siakona. What has a tattoo got to do with it? At the end of the day, everybody today seems to have tattoos. They are very commonplace. Hi Patricia, we're too lax altogether when it comes to tattoos. They are unprofessional, says this texter. They should either be covered up or removed when at all places of work, says this person. Anne says, morning Patricia, we can't have Gardi or anyone in public service going around with visible tattoos. Definitely not. Right decision. That's from Anne. Jim says, Patricia, you ask any serving member of An corner, would they recommend it as a uh, career the morale is very low, and they're not happy with their rosters. As for the commissioner, well, that is another story. Says Jim. Hi, Patricia. Could they not get some kind of a covering over the skin of the uh, tattoo? Tattoo. I recently saw a band guard, which they're not called anymore. A member, for, a female member from Garda Síochána. She was walking around the town, and she had bright pink nail varnish on. Well, I think that's. I think that doesn't. I don't know what the ruling on nail varnish is is Charlie's in Whelan says uh, that... Those three Gardhi should take the force for unfair dismissal. They're, at the end of the day, they are crying out for Gardhi, so they need to shift the goalposts on this one. Billing Kilty said, with so much talk about inclusiveness today, if a Gardhi is dealing with somebody that has a tattoo, and he also has one himself, will it not break down a few barriers between the people? I see Gardaí with beards today. Once upon a time, uh, members of Shia Siakana were not allowed to have beards. Were not allowed to have beards? Goodness and uh, Jamie uh, recently returned from Australia his housemate in Sydney was a member of the police force and he had a tattoo but for New South Wales police they are allowed to have tattoos once they're not on display on your hands neck or face in Western Australia you have to submit a photo of your tattoo before joining the force. Well, I think that's what's quite annoying about this particular case because this 32-year-old uh, man gave up and an, gave up his career in order to become a member of the Garda Síochána, and he says the process took him about 18 months, which included multiple assessments and interviews. And nobody paid any attention to the tattoo and he wasn't hiding it at any of the interviews or any of the assessments. And they wait until he gives up his job, you know, puts his, ends his life because he does have a young child. So he's leaving, you know, a a partner, a wife and a young child behind to go into more guard the college to complete his training and a week in he's sent home because of the tattoos and that's the galling part i think of this story.
0: Email patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Report today
2: on C103. Now we ran a news report uh, yesterday that highlighted due to the shortage of priests in this country, we may well start to become like the UK where funerals are held weeks rather than days after a person dies. The issue was raised by Portlaoise priest Father Paddy Byrne who joins me this morning. Good morning to you Father Paddy.
3: Good morning, Patricia. And Good morning to all your
2: listeners. And you're you're very you're very welcome. You said, and I quote, priests are dying on their feet trying to cover funerals. Is the aging priest population really beginning to take hold now?
3: Well, um, firstly I think my comments I think are very real and genuine as a man who has served for over twenty years, one of the younger ones still. Um, who observes, who has taken on a lot of responsibility. As most clergy who are in Ireland, I look after three parishes now. um, And to say I'm stretched and I'm not moaning because I know many of your listeners are parents who are up early and everybody trying their best in life and we're all stretched. But there is a question of justice and in terms of social justice, when it comes to care of the elderly, I feel very passionate about it. And I, when I have colleagues, and I'm sure in Cork, similar in, in in your parishes, when there are men in their late 70s and 80s and some even in their 90s who are literally trying to keep going to provide essential services for communities that still, and I think it's a positive thing in terms of where I'm coming from, still turn to the spiritual at key moments in life, from the joy of birth to the moment when couples get married, perhaps occasionally who come Into church for Eucharist. But essentially, one of the real places of relevance in Irish culture for myself as a priest is when it comes to that ultimate moment of vulnerability, the passing of a loved one, which is a very intimate moment. And a moment when that needs time, when it needs presence, when it needs care. And we do it so well right across the country. But I think that that. The way we do our business, because we have failed, and I use the word failed to embrace an alternative model, it doesn't have to be like this, but that the fact of the matter is there are a tiny, tiny, minuscule numbers entering into formation, which means literally we are on the cusp, if not already, in the midst of a tsunami of change. And I know that in Cork, as it is right across mm. the country, where clergy literally are no longer able to keep going because and it's absolutely shocking to expect I don't think, uh, respectfully in any other profession uh, we well, would be expect people yeah, in their 80s to provide services to it people.
2: It's the one thing I was thinking of in, in advance of you coming on the programme and I, there isn't a single industry that would be asking people in their 70s, 80s and, and 90s to remain working it just doesn't happen
3: No, No, and again we're not um, I'm, I'm not a trade unionist oh, no. in that we have a call in terms of it's our way of life. It's in our DNA to serve. And I, I think these men, are many of them, are absolutely genuine and exemplary. And it gives them energy. And perhaps it's not all negative. You know, in the United States, people work much later than we they do in Ireland professionally as well. But all I'm making the point is, and I think this is fact because this is my experience, I look after, with joy, three parishes here in the heart of County Leash. Uh, seven years ago, there was... Or sorry, ten years ago, there would have been seven priests in this area. Now there's one full-time one. Wow. And, and I'm expected, by not just the authorities, but by the people, to provide quite a similar service that what was 20 years ago. So I think, you know, we could have changed, Patricia, Uh, we could have embraced the signs of the times. As church, we could have listened to the good people on the ground. We could have been vociferous as church leadership in terms of um, at least being prophetic and saying, why can't women be ordained? Why do young men have to come into seminary go out into the communities and not have the comfort and consolation of a human partner allowed to be married if they wish or have family. You know, we could have operated a more embracing model of church that empowered our lay faithful to be real leaders in the best sense of that word, in liturgical sense as well. So, you know, it's too late the talk, in my opinion, even we're we're at a process at the moment right across the church called the synodal process, and that's an important one. But really, that process in Ireland, I fear it's too late for any radical intervention, because we have failed, the model is no longer viable, it's no longer necessary, and yet we don't seem to have the vehicle to be able to bring reform at the pace of which we are declining has so accelerated so it's a it's a very very worrying <laughs> time
2: yeah. And, yeah and are we looking outside uh, because we don't have the vocations here at home um, Father Paddy are we looking outside um, Ireland to get priests from other countries to come here well, is, is that ongoing
3: It's ongoing it's a reality in the diocese I serve and many of these guys come from different parts of the world but it takes time to yeah. enculturate to become aware of the culture um, personally, I, I like Cardinal Tagle, a man of great intellect, and uh, who wrote recently about his concern, a former head of the Filipino Church. And you know, the national, the natural migration for mission in terms of the gospel is always from the first world to the third world. That's the gravitas of what the gospel is. So, I'm not sure if that's the answer, or are we just started sticking plasters mm. on a wound? Temporarily, that's
2: yeah, just yeah, postponing reality, and just on a practical level, you know, I, I'm I'm still trying to come to terms with you trying to do the work that you know, ten years ago seven priests uh, were doing covering three parishes, um, and even though we have low attendance at mass, you write about the ceremonies and in particular, I think funerals. People want the traditional funerals. If if you this if you had a number of people dying in th- over the three parishes, how do you work? How do you physically arrange all of the different funerals? Well, again, you know, it, it is
3: an extraordinary way of life, and there is grace in that. It's not about me, you know. I, you depend uh, on the grace of God to give to give that strength of character to do so. But people, by the way, Patricia are very accommodating. Uh, like. You know, it may not be a bad thing that there's priestless parishes. In in one of the parishes, and there's there's no priest at all presiding. And, you know, it's the most active place. Uh, every aspect of the parish in terms of administration and ministry, is looked after by lay people. And I think they come around to the fact that knowing, well, just because my my mum has passed on Monday doesn't mean that on Wednesday her rec room will be. And I do think that, you know, in Ireland, it's the only country in the world where we sort of rush the ritual very quickly. Mm. Uh, there is, in my experience, and I would say to your listeners, we've all been affected by grief it's very, very big part of our vulnerable life story is the loss of a loved one. We we, we rush it, and, you know, it's no harm to spend a few days and time to process before you even begin to prepare for the celebration of the ritual. And there'll be no... uh, I don't think there'll be a revolution when that happens, because I think, by and large... We, the people, I've, I had the privilege uh, many years ago of working down in Clown Tawn as a chaplain in the University Hospital in Cork. Yeah. And I witnessed um, I witnessed firsthand, it was a joyful time in my life, the wonderful people there, the sense of community, the, the sense of, particularly at those vulnerable moments, the, the community carry each other. And I think, you know, OK, we know the story of the Catholic Church in Ireland in the past 30 years, that dreadful, dark secret of clerical child sexual abuse, of all those scandals that did untold damage to our moral credibility and our moral leadership. But at least the truth was out. But I think as well, there is a truth that's not been told, that the vast, vast majority of priests in this country are decent, good, respectable human beings, trying their humble best in with our inadequate, often vulnerable selves, to serve God's people in the best possible way we can. And people, by and large, on the ground, have a positive relationship with their local priest. So and I, I think that's well important said. to name that. Well said,
2: know? well said. We'll leave it on that very positive note. Listen, uh, Father Paddy, enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that and look after yourself
3: and great to talk to Cork people.
2: God bless. Take care. Bye bye. That is uh, Father Paddy Byrne who is a parish priest in uh, Port Leach looking after three different parishes. Somebody says Father Paddy speaks since it's celibacy that has ruined the church.
0: Cork today on C103. Now
2: Active Retirement Ireland it's the country's largest membership organisation for older people. They found nearly 94% of their members surveyed would like to see the establishment of an independent commissioner for ageing and older people here in uh, Ireland. Alison Bow of Active Retirement Ireland uh, joins me. Good morning to you Alison. Good morning Patricia. You're very welcome. Now I believe there is a similar commissioner in place in Northern Ireland and in Wales. Talk to me a little bit about the role and what you would see as the role of this independent commissioner.
4: That's correct. And a lot of people may be unaware, actually, that there's been a commissioner for ageing and older people in place in Northern Ireland, actually, since 2016. Eddie Lynch has been in the role. And as you mentioned, Wales have a commissioner for older people as well. So I suppose for those who may have no awareness about what that person does or what their role is, Maybe a clearer comparison would be that um, the Ombudsman for Children, for example, so what you have is an independent commissioner working outside of the government framework, outside of the political framework, as a voice and an advocate for older people. So the Commissioner's Office in Northern Ireland, for example, covers a wide range of many, many issues that that affect older people and interests that older people have in their respective region. So that's everything from advocacy, so serving as a voice for older people, advising government on policy and legislation. So they're advising policymakers and and legislators on matters that are relating to ageing and older people. And that's right down across the gamut into education and awareness about ageism, engaging with older people themselves at a local community level, collaborating with organizations such as ourselves, age organizations and agencies, for example, such as the HSE. And then you'd have um, monitoring and reporting in investigations, for example, if you've got alleged cases of mistreatment or abuse or elder abuse. So a huge well, range
2: yeah, of, of really, issues. Yeah, a really wide remit, but the focus yeah. is all on uh, older people. And currently, Alison, do older people feel that their needs are not being properly considered, or not being properly planned for by the government?
4: Well, you mentioned the fairly astounding results of our survey, our member consultation. And as you said, we had 94% people saying that they wanted an independent commissioner put in place so that they have a voice. And what that is telling us is that our older people feel marginalised by policymakers. They are saying to us that they do not feel they have a national voice. So we're taking that really seriously. Now, we've been advocating for a commissioner for quite a number of years. But this is across, as we discussed, many issues. On top of the 94% uh, of respondents that wanted an independent commissioner, commissioner, we also had 96% of our respondents saying that they wanted a positive ageing framework put in place by the government because what we have at the moment and what has been in place since 2013 is not working.
2: That was the National Positive Aging Strategy. I mean, I remember, I actually, I had to look it up yesterday. I couldn't believe that it was 2013 was when it was actually uh, published. Ten years. And that was amid yeah. uh, much fanfare. I mean, what has become of that strategy?
4: honest with you, Patricia, very, very little. Ah. It has completely stagnated over a 10-year period. It it was, as you say, 2013 the National Positive Ageing Strategy was put in place. There were commitments in the programme for government thereafter over the next 10 years. Those commitments were largely not followed through on. So we have Minister Mary Butler now who is Minister of State in the Department of Health for older people. Now, Minister Butler has the portfolio for older people, but also, as I say, is sitting in the Department of Health and also has a mental health portfolio. So is largely focused on a medical and care model.
2: Mm, the fact in, that it's under the Department of Health, it really does say, well, we're going to prioris- prioritise the health of older people.
4: Well, that that is the model that we are stuck working in when it comes to ageing. And Minister Butler has proposed replacing the National Positive Ageing Strategy with a Commission on Care. Now, we're very clear in active retirement that we welcome a Commission on Care and it is certainly much needed. But we do not feel on any level that that's an entire solution because in our minds and in the voices of our members and our older people, ageing is not synonymous with care. Mm. You know, ageing is not a medical problem. So we really need to, to widen the lens and move away from viewing ageing in a medical model.
2: And we know we have an ageing population, Alison. We, we often, and it's constantly gets referenced, uh, certainly in the media, and it gets spoken about uh, by government uh, ministers and, and TDs. So because we have this ageing population, we really need to work at allowing people to age with dignity and to age with respect. I mean, that's what m- most of us want to do.
4: And that's exactly what we're talking about, is having a commissioner who's independent of a political framework in place. To to give that voice, Patricia, to older people, because, uh, as you say, like many other developed nations around the world, we've had a really significant transformation in our population dynamics. You know, we Mm -hmm. have population ageing. We have a notable increase in the number of older people. Thankfully, due to longer, much longer life expectancies, we've had a change in birth rates the demographic of our society is completely different to how it was 30 or 40 years ago. And that has really long reaching implications for for all of our society in the future, but also now. So we, we are experiencing some degree of urgency at the moment in, in how we view both our demographic, our older population and our society as a whole, uh, politically and economically. So we we really need to make a move on this. You know, we've had 10 years of a stagnating, positive ageing strategy, which, to be perfectly honest, hasn't worked. And certainly, you know, hasn't worked the way it was intended, I would say that much.
2: Yeah, and it's something, you know, we all need to be concerned about because, uh, please God, we'll all grow old
4: well exactly yeah. and we and we all hope to get there you yeah, know yeah. and it's it's it is about that it's about yes we have to acknowledge the challenges of having you know an aging population there are challenges there are healthcare challenges there are care and support challenges it puts pressure on our healthcare system and our social infrastructure but there are also a lot of opportunities that come with having older citizens you know so but those older citizens are, want to be actively engaged in, in changing policies and how our resources are allocated. And at the moment, what they're telling us in our survey is that they're being marginalised.
2: OK, and just before we let you go, Alison, yesterday on the programme, I was speaking with the housing charity at Threshold and we were speaking about an increase in people facing eviction notice since the eviction mm. ban uh, was uh, lifted. And they spoke about the number of older people facing eviction ban and facing homelessness. That really is very concerning, isn't it?
4: It's hugely concerning. We know from our own statistics and our own findings that that is a particular challenge and difficulty for older single men. So that is a significant problem. Now, it is a problem across the board, but we know for older single men it is a particularly frightening prospect and it's happening a lot. So, you know, there again we we have to advocate for we're calling for a commissioner for older people, but we are also calling for benchmarking of the of the state contributory pension. So we've been asking for a number of years now that, that the state contributory pension reaches a minimum of thirty four percent of average earnings, average weekly earnings. Again, despite a twelve euro increase we had in, in the last budget. Uh, you know that's even with a 12 euro increase per week that's still falling short of the benchmark it is not benchmarked at 34% we are also asking the government to triple lock that state pension so that would mean that um it guarantees adjustments in accordance with inflation and if average earnings grow or change that the state pension is adjusted accordingly. So we're asking for a triple-locked pension. We're asking for a benchmarked pension. There are financial aids available, uh, you know, living alone allowance, medical cards, and they certainly play a role. But, we will acknowledge the fact that every year as we, as we approach budget time, these are political footballs. Mm-hmm. And were we to have somebody advocating for older people who was not in the political arena, such as an independent commissioner, then we would stand a far greater chance of not having these adjustments made on a yearly basis and, and not set in stone.
2: OK, all right, well said. Listen, Alison, we leave it there. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Thanks, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is uh, Alison Bow, who is with Active Retirement Ireland. 0818 103103. 103. A couple of weeks ago, we had some calls in from people who were complaining that when they were in some of the larger department stores, that all of the Halloween items were out, and I've seen them all—the gorgeous autumnal colours and the pumpkins and the scary witches and the dressing up outfits—and they're all in all of the. Department uh, stores and that was at the end of July, the start of August and people were saying, oh come on, the children are not even back at school yet. Is it way too early for Halloween? But we kind of got over that. That was about two weeks ago. Well I've just been told that the Brown Thomas Christmas Shop is opening on this Thursday which is the 17th of uh, August. It will launch its uh, Christmas store in Dublin Cork and in uh, Limerick on this Thursday and that it, it it's a 132 days to uh, Christmas. So just uh, in case you're one of those ones that like to get organised early Thursday, it's opening 0818 103 103. Let me stay on uh, pensions. Joe in Kilmalach has contacted us. Um, good morning, Joe. Good morning, Patricia. You want to raise the issue of pensions?
3: I do indeed. I mean, yeah, when, you, when you're a couple, yeah. you've, you have two pensions. Yeah, but when one of, the, one of the, uh, the, uh, the couples die, like my wife passed away, that pension is gone, and you have you still have the same bills coming in. You have to pay for everything, and there's nothing extra.
2: And it's one of the things that has been identified: a single pensioner living on their own are the ones most most struggling because you still have all the same bills
3: we've all the same bills yeah. and you you have to still have to put our uh, food on the table you've the same bills electricity
2: everything, heating everything, everything. Ha- house insurance anything right. anything else yeah and are everything. you are you finding it hard joe um i i'm managing yeah. i'm managing yes but uh, the thing is i strongly
3: believe that the contributory pension should be increased to 300 euros
2: yeah yeah and that's what Alison Bow of Active Retirement Ireland and a number of other groups are are saying the same thing it really is hard. All right listen Joe thank you for that. Thank you very much. and uh, Bye uh, bye. Thanks uh, for joining us. And actually somebody else just on the cost of living. This is, this is across the board for everybody. Patrick in McCroom uh, was on uh, to, and he's saying, has anybody else noticed that the grocery shopping is continuing to go up and is continuing to become more expensive? Now, Patrick is one of those uh, people who's really watching what they're spending on their grocery. And he goes around to all of the major stores, trying to get the best bargains when it comes to doing the food shop and he just feels food has gone expensive in all of uh, the stores. He said, we heard earlier in the summer that inflation was coming down But uh, Patrick thinks the cost of fuel and food has increased more so than it has last year. Well, when we spoke about inflation is coming down, but the cost of fuel and the cost of groceries are going up. Um, But overall inflation is coming down. But yeah, you're right. Cost of food is going up. And then he gave us some examples. His grocery bill for his family, he says usually they'd spend between 100 and 150 euro a week. He said now to get enough food in for the food for the week is that they're lucky if they can do it for 200 uh, euro. He has his neighbour who is a much larger family and Patrick got talking to the neighbour about how much groceries were and the neighbour was saying that normally with a large family, 200 euro would cover them for their grocery bill and now the larger family living next door, it's touching 400 euro. Patrick said in particular he's noticed that meat and fish are gone very, very expensive. Are others noticing it uh, too? I imagine, Patrick, there's a lot of people listening to us this morning nodding in their kitchens going, Patrick and McCroom is spot on everything is going up in price. Let's take a look at some of your calls and comments coming in to the programme. Oh firstly this is on a comment that came in yesterday. It was John in Blackpool had contacted us. Uh, he is 70 years of age if my memory serves me right and he contacted us because he doesn't do online banking and his nearest AIB branch where he has his bank account is a decent walk away and he's not very mobile and he suffers with he said, quite severe back issues and that when he rang up to try and get a balance he wasn't allowed to get a balance over the phone and he was told either to do it online or to go into a bank branch and he just felt you know as an older customer could they not facilitate doing it over the phone? Well somebody in AIB was listening to us and I got an email in overnight from the head of external communications in Dublin uh, to say I'm contacting you because you mentioned a customer on your programme on your show uh, yesterday. You reported that a man called John was facing difficult." accessing his bank balance due to health issues and the distance to his nearest AIB branch. If you would kindly ask John if he's willing to share his contact details, I will ask a customer service representative to contact him to see what advice or support they can provide. Isn't that good? Kind regards. that's Kathleen who contacts us. She's the head of external communication. So we are going to uh, pass all of that information on to John and uh, let John deal with AIB. And let's see, customer support person uh, will hopefully sort him out. But that's good. That's good customer service. Uh, Kudos uh, to the bank there. We're always... Very quick to point out when people don't do things uh, right, but we hadn't even reached out to AIB. They actually heard about it and got on to us. So thank you for that. 103, 103 On the young teen that was before the juvenile courts yesterday, seventeen-year-old uh, boy charged over an unprovoked, what's been described as extremely violent robbery of an English tourist in Dublin's Temple Bar. Three men in their twenties ended up being taken to St James's Hospital after the incident which happened in the city centre on uh, Friday night. Uh, we knew there was one young guy arrested because he got picked up on CCTV and the reason he got picked up on CCTV and there was really good CCTV, seemingly the the said, and he had stolen. one When one of the English lads was on the ground, he had rummaged through his pockets, uh, he found his wallet and then he was caught on CCTV trying to use the man's bank card in a nearby Central shop but the staff required him to put a, um, a pin number in. They wouldn't let him tap and uh, go, and he refused and, and left. And he got caught then on uh, CCTV, and he was actually stopped by the Guard See about an hour after the incident, and they had had a chat with him. And then obviously, when they got went back to all the CCTV footage from three different locations, it was of excellent quality, and they were able to capture the entire incident. So this young lad was identified. He was before the courts yesterday, and he arrived in the courthouse sobbing, uh, rubbing his eyes and he cried throughout the uh, contested bail uh, hearing and he was accompanied by his mother. He was, somebody said, was he granted bail? He was granted bail. I think the main reason he was granted bail was the judge was aware of how long it was going to take before this court comes back, in. Comes this case comes back into court because like with the American man. Who was left in a coma following his uh, attack? The Guardi will look at moving it from the juvenile courts and move it up to a higher court because if they get it to a higher court, it comes with a tougher sentence. Anyway, a couple of people saying, Patton for more. The only reason that young fella was crying in court was because he was caught. Somebody says, Prisha, I have absolutely no pity for what I would only describe as that young thug in Dublin. Crying in court was only, in my opinion, him looking for sympathy. He should get punished severely for what he did. I never had peace of mind when my daughter was living and working in Dublin. Thank God she is no longer there. And someone else said, on their first offence they should be tagged, not put in prison but tagged and put on a very very strict curfew. And then they should also, it should be part of the conditions the parents have to be then made responsible for that young person. While it's not all the parents fault when these young guys and gals go astray, they do need to step up to the mark and start to take responsibility. Also when it comes to free legal aid um, it says uh, Pat it should be made the person should get free legal aid once and once only. We have repeat offenders going back into the courts and they continuously get uh, free legal aid. And actually this young 17-year-old was granted free legal aid uh, yesterday and he, had, he has to adhere to strict bail conditions, which includes a curfew. And he's not, anyway, uh, he's not allowed anywhere near uh, Dublin too. And actually when he spoke yesterday, he said, I'll stay out of Dublin uh, too. So there is a strict conditions. I think he's got to sign on three times uh, a week uh, as well. Uh, 0818 103 103. There's more young people, of course, involved in that case. So let's wait and see. Will more come before the courts and will they all be underage as they were with the American man? All three were, was it... 14, 15 and 16. Anyway, they were, they were very young, the ones involved with the uh, American. Now, on the... Still getting in thoughts and comments on the tattoo and the three trainee Gardaí uh, sent home. Jonathan Bushman said, Patricia, the guy who were to leave... The guard the training course because of the tattoo on his hand. Instead of all the whining and moaning that he's doing, he should simply go away and get the tattoo removed in order that he can get back into uh, training, says John from Botafund. Well, I, I think he'll probably, even though he, he, he does say in the papers today he's now out looking for a new job, uh, he did say um, he he would look at having it removed, but it would cost up to two thousand euro and at least twenty painful sessions, and even after that, because it's it's a big tattoo on his hand. Uh, he doesn't even know if because it would still look unsightly. They, you know, small tattoos can be removed, it is harder to remove uh, larger ones, but um, uh, he certainly, I think, is going to look at that. Uh, he has considered that option, but I don't think, judging by what he said, he's out looking for another job that he's going to go down that route. And bearing in mind that he does have a five year old uh, child, so he needs to get back out and work obviously to start earning money uh, as well. And then we had a caller. 208 18 103, 103 on the Gardi and this tattoo.
5: And if a guy comes along with a tattoo in his ear and a tattoo in his eye and all the rest of it, what kind of respect would you have for a man like that? None whatsoever. He's only the same as the rest. So, therefore, to gain respect, you've got to have a code of ethics, you've got to have a uniform, you've got to be, I mean, your first impression of somebody is how they look. I mean, if a guy turns up in a casual year with a tattoo on his ear, you're going to be taking him seriously. Even a priest recently turned up to a funeral uh, in um, casual year. I remarked it to him. I said, don't ever turn up to my funeral. I said, dressed like that. Ah, uh, but I'm going playing golf later. I said, but you're not playing golf now. You're in your position and you are acting as you as in your profession so i said dress accordingly this casual idea or this couldn't care less idea is is started in america and it's supposed to be relaxing and you're supposed to just, your job is number one it isn't relaxing is number one it's your, your job is number one and how you present yourself.
2: All right, thank you for that. This uh, caller to the program this morning feeling quite strongly uh, that the Gardaí are right not to be allowing uh, tattoos. And somebody else was saying that this—I uh, didn't realise at one stage they weren't allowed to have beards—and they are now. Somebody was saying that they should go back to that to the clean-shaven look. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. And then reaction to Father Paddy Byrne who joined us talking about the ageing population within the church. And we've a serious, serious problem and we've been talking about this for years, but I think it's starting to really, really bite uh, now. And there is the the thought process that there won't be uh, in some parishes there's not enough priests around particularly to do things like funerals. And even though there is a fall off in the number of people attending Mass on Sundays, most people who identify as Catholics whether they're practising or not uh, when they pass away or have a family member that pass away they want the idea of going to the church having the mass and having the Christian uh, burial but that obviously is going to put pressure on parishes I mean Father Paddy talking to us about he's the only priest, served for three parishes, whereas 10 years ago there was seven. So you can imagine if there's a run on, you know, you, you, you can get a run on debts in different parishes and in neighbouring parishes. He, he can't be at every single uh, funeral. So, you know, he's making the point that are we going, to, I was saying, are we going down the route of what happens in England where you can wait many, many weeks? before you actually have the uh, funeral. And I thought it was interesting when he was saying that he he felt that is, that isn't the worst idea. Do we bury our loved ones too quickly in this country? Is that something that we should reflect on and something we'll be forced to reflect on when it looks like there won't be enough priests, particularly if, if that's what you want. If you want a Christian burial and you want a Catholic burial, you may have to uh, wait. Is that not the worst thing in the world that could uh, happen? Um, somebody wants to point out that something Father Paddy said uh, and this listener is saying Jewish Islamic funerals usually take place within 24 hours of the person passing or as fast as is reasonably possible. So it's disingenuous of Father Paddy to say that we do funerals too fast. Other cultures do them quicker. And then on not having enough priests, somebody said let let priests marry. We'd have plenty of priests if we simply allow them to marry. And that's what Father Paddy said, that whole celibacy law needs to be looked at and Dan said the ridiculous celibacy law in this church was really shown up last week with the appointment of a new curate by Bishop Crane the new curate has a wife and six uh, children 0818103103 on older people And do we need a commissioner for older people whose remit would be a little bit like the Ombudsman for Children whose remit is solely focused on children, a commissioner for older uh, people and ageing like what they have in Northern Ireland, like what they have in Wales. It would be fighting the corner with all of the different agencies and the government on behalf of older people somebody said absolutely I agree whole heartedly we need this commissioner to help with the elderly. Why is everything for example gone online especially with regards to getting tickets for things like GAA matches if we had a commissioner for ageing and older people. That's exactly the type of issue that they could uh, bring up. Thank you for that. 0818 103 103. and then a totally different topic but I I suppose because we referenced and we're talking about funerals with Father Paddy, that has prompted Ken to contact us to say, we have family buried at St. Oliver's Cemetery in Balancholic. My wife would dearly love a plot in that graveyard and she'd like one next to or close to family members. We have our name down with the caretaker, but nothing is coming up at the moment. However, before you can arrange this The Cork City Council have now taken, before you were able to arrange this, you were able to buy your plot in advance. But the Cork City Council have now taken control of the cemetery and it's now within Cork City Council. I rang the City Council to see if we could pre-order a plot at the cemetery, but they said that cannot be done anymore. And they simply would bury the person in the cemetery after a funeral with the next available grave. There's no more pre-buying of plots. We did... um, Ken, I don't know if if you joined us, if you're new to the programme, but a number of weeks ago we actually covered that very same uh, issue because we had an elderly lady who unfortunately is coming to the end of her days and is trying to have everything in place. And it was, I think it was a nephew of hers contacted us because she had a particular cemetery where she wants to be buried in. So he went along to try and do all the arrangements for her only to discover that they can't make the arrangements until she passes uh, away. And I remember at the time they hadn't told her because it would be very upsetting uh, for her, but she wanted to know, you know, that she had a plot in the cemetery and it was one of the cemeteries that was filling up uh, very quickly. So, yeah, it's... uh, And and I think, in fairness, when we got on to the council about it, it's to do with too many people were pre-booking... over the years people, you know, bought their plots and then some plots just haven't been used. Somebody might have bought a plot and then might have moved away from the area and the plot is there not being used but because it was pre-sold to somebody it can't be used. So, and because we're running out of burial Spaces in cemeteries. This seems to be the fairest way that you can't get allocated your plot until you pass away. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. John Paul, taking your calls. C one
0: zero three jobs. Ward
2: personnel are recruiting for experienced ground workers. You can call oh two one. Two three three nine one two zero PK Rubber Limited, they're based in Coachford. They've got vacancies for full and part time drivers. Now it's for rigid and Arctic trucks. They're also looking for a general foreman, 086 294 3987. An early years assistant, you need to have a minimum fee level 6 in childcare. It's wanted for a preschool in system You email your CV to littlevillage0641313 at gmail.com. And a person wanted for a furniture and a carpet store, that's in Bantry. Experience will be preferred, although it's not essential. Tigers, you contact 086 837 9790. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by simply going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103.
0: Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group, for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. C M I G. I E.
2: Former Dragon Dens star and well known businesswoman Nora Casey is urging senior women in business and politics. To help prevent women leaving the workforce due to the menopause by sharing their own experiences. And I say the wonderful Nora Casey joins me this morning. Good morning, Jenora. Morning, Patricia. You are very welcome. And go you on this one, and well done for highlighting it. Do we need to talk more about menopause and stop this almost hushed or non-existent conversations?
6: Oh, definitely. We need to talk more. In fact, I think menopause is having a moment um, because sometimes I think we're talking, but always slightly in the wrong space. I'm going to put that really sensitively because I kind of grew up in my business life when the menopause was it was mysterious there was lots of myths about it. It was full of misinformation. And given that it happens to 51% of the Earth's population and almost all women will go through it, I never understood why we could talk about the other life stages. But actually, the cessation of menstruation, which is what the menopause is, or the reversal of menstruation, was something that we never discussed. It was almost shameful. Um, and then I think in the last year or so, we've started talking about it more and more. It's become a bit of a marketing gimmick, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that women would find it very hard sometimes to see between all of the marketing employees that are out there around the menopause about what what really is facing them and where can they get the support i'm a judge now on the menopause workplace excellence awards i love the idea of doing that because it actually promotes the positivity and the people who are doing really well and saying they're the standard bearers and what everyone should live up to the reason i talk about business women and politics is that we have no end of celebrities from gwyneth paltrow to opera to davina mccall talking about um, the menopause, and it's helpful, I suppose, if you also have a well-being company that might promote menopause-related products, um, but in reality, the vast majority of women are out there working um, when they reach the average age, which is 51, and they still need to continue working, and we have very few people who are in business like me or in politics who ever talk openly about um, their menopausal symptoms.
2: And what are the figures on the number of women who quit or maybe consider giving up work due to menopause?
6: Oh, they're not good, Patricia. I think, you know, one in 10 women um, in the in this big survey that um, the Menopause Hub did, it's an advocacy group working for women in the menopause. Um, one in 10 women um, gave up work because of debilitating symptoms, which is, which is a little overwhelming. But worse, I think over 80%, 81% didn't feel comfortable talking to their employers. Um, about um, just over a third phoned in sick because of symptoms that they had. I think the real issue that the survey exposed was how even though we see it in headlines and we're talking about it in the workplace it's still not considered something it's a taboo it's still not considered something that um, women feel comfortable discussing I understand that by the way because I'll tell you when I was in boardrooms going through some very bad symptoms of the menopause there's not one part of me that would have admitted to the entire room which were all men what I was going through at that time. Um, you just—it's it, There's no comfort in it. Um, I was working with uh, INMO recently in the last couple of years on menopause with nurses. And if you imagine how difficult it is for a woman in the workplace to experience things like brain fog or disorientation or depression insomnia was a killer for me you know i mean almost completely expected and and open to all kinds of conversations when you have a baby and you don't sleep but in fact my big experience of insomnia was when I was going through the perimenopause so if it's difficult for us in a workplace situation imagine what it feels like if you're at the front line of health services and you turn up for work and you're not feeling 100% and you're going through some of those symptoms and you're you exhausted because
7: yeah you're because yeah, you, have you haven't be slept able to be
6: able to go you your boss and say look yeah. I, you know I don't want to be in ICU today because I don't feel that I'll be at my best you know what yeah. can we do how can we be flexible
2: and that's the one thing the symptoms Nora can be so wide and so varied
6: yes and some women don't have symptoms i mean that's the reality but it can range from
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
6: One that people talk about sometimes depression. It's not just, I suppose the biggest message you can give to women is it isn't just that your menstruation or your period stop. It's actually a huge change to your body. It's a whole, um, you know, systematic change to the body from hot flashes, which not every woman gets, um, forgetfulness, mood swings, the joint pain. So sometimes women can suffer with a whole range of symptoms. Sometimes they can have quite mild symptoms and sometimes they can have none. I mean, I, I was talking to a, a gynecologist recently who said she's getting some women coming in saying, is there something wrong with me? I haven't got any symptoms. Yeah. But the reality is for those that do, they need to have that support i am a great believer in testimony i think in my own life i've uh, shown that i'm willing to stand up and talk authentically about some really difficult life experiences and in ireland that's true of all kinds of areas when i was growing up we didn't talk about mental health issues or child sexual abuse or homosexuality and then some very brave people gave testimony and were seen you know, um, that allowed others yeah it allowed but others to open see, up Yeah, when it comes to the menopause, I have never heard a senior woman politician, for instance, talking about menopausal symptoms. Now, I accept that that might be very difficult for a woman in politics. But even if you look at the Forbes top 500 women in the world, you you won't get past the first 50 without seeing that they're all over 50 apart from two. And, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, Christian Lagarde, Kamala Harris. Melinda Gates, all of those people and including a lot of Irish women politicians must have gone through yeah, the menopause yeah, and yeah. If they gave testimony it might help, you know other women to realize that it's okay like everybody goes through it It especially in business terms I mean women don't get promoted until they're much older than men loads of research backs that up I mean well the Forbes power women's list backs it up too that you know you get into your 50s and you get the hot seat and sometimes there's uh, another hot seat that uh, the world has to store (laughs) for you But, but you know the reality is I think we're always hearing people who climb mountains there are some days when I was running multiple companies and i found i climbed a mountain just by getting through the day with all of those symptoms going through my body, you know. So women in business, I would just ask, instead of othering it, because I read all the time about champions in business saying, oh, we need to do something about all the women who are, but almost excluding themselves, you know, all those other women that we hear about who are going through menopausal symptoms. I think we need some courage to stand up and say, Actually I've been through that. Of course I have. It's part of the life stages. I'd compare it to something like erectile dysfunction, which was almost something that was never ever discussed until all those ads for Viagra happened. In fact, Bob Dole, you know, the US politician, he did the ads, the first ad I think in in uh, the 80s for the for the uh, little blue pill as they call it. Yeah. Um, but, but he was the first person to say, I'm embarrassed and I find it embarrassing to talk about erectile dysfunction, but we need to discuss it. And then suddenly the world changed about a natural process of ageing for men and a very practical solution that could help them. So we need those moments for the menopause.
2: For, for, for the women. And of course, and by doing that, uh, this generation, by us speaking up, we'll make it easier for the younger generation coming up behind us.
6: Yes, and I think that's tremendously important because we prepare a lot for, you know, young women going through their teenage years and puberty. And, you know, if you think of all of the life stages that women go through, I I recently was asked to speak about my journey as a woman. And of course, I could have spent all my time talking about boardrooms and workplaces, but in fact, I just talked about what naturally happens to a woman as she goes through her life. And you have to do all of that as well as become the CEO of a company.
2: Well done, well done. And you 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 are, you you did mention at at the start you are involved with these awards to recognise workpla- workplaces that have good um, uh, practices because some are great and they need to be recognised.
6: Yes, and I think another good thing about the awards, they close, by the way, on September 8th. If you're out there and you're a workplace and you want to take part, you can go on to the um menopauseexcellence.com website and you'll find all the details. But I mean, the really great thing is that a lot of people do want to do something and they don't know how they can do it. What practical steps can you take as an employer? I've always believed if somebody, you know, sets the standard, you should be heroing them, holding them up, you know, creating um, iconic workplace practices that other people can follow that have that have over time proven to be successful.
2: Okay, and are are you at the other side of it all now, Nora?
6: Still going through a bit of it, and yeah. um, and do you know what? Some days are great, and some. I I chose, you know, HRT. I've always said to women, it's up to you as to what you choose uh, to go with, you know. But get the information from a reliable source. The menopause hub is a great source to go to. Um, there is so much. I mean, I'm getting recipe books for the menopause, clothing for the menopause, <laughs> all <laughs> kinds of mindfulness for the menopause. I mean, I do think it's one of those, you know, as I said at the start, it's having a moment in marketing terms. So cutting all the clutter out of the way and going to somebody that you can sit in front of and talk to honestly about what options are available to you and, and what help you would be comfortable taking yourself.
2: Mm. Okay, and uh, I can see a number of listeners, uh, including Anne says, fair play to that woman. That woman is Nora Casey. <laughs> fair play for her talking up. We need more women to talk up. Listen, Nora, um, I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, good, uh, good morning to you. Uh, bye-bye. That is uh, businesswoman uh, Nora Casey and of course well known to people uh, as a former Dragon Den's star now, after a hugely successful exhibition last year, the National Archives is once again bringing the Michael Collins Diaries back to the Michael Collins House Museum in Clonakilty for this the month of August to find out how the exhibition is going and what people can expect by going along to visit I'm joined by Jamie Murphy and Jamie is the general manager of the Michael Collins House uh, Museum. Good morning to you, Jamie. Good
7: morning, Patricia. Thanks for having me on. Oh,
2: well, you're very welcome. And go back and just remind us how the National Archives came to having care of these wonderful diaries.
7: So it goes back to um, 2020 when the, the the family of the late Liam Collins, um, obviously uh, the grandnephew of Michael Collins, uh, donated the, the diaries to the state into the care of the National Archives. Now, one of the conditions on... Um, I suppose, gifting the, the diaries to the state was that the diaries return to Michael Collins' hometown of Clonakilty at least once a year on, around his anniversary. So every August, the diaries come back to Michael Collins' house in Clonakilty.
2: And you're going to stick to that <laughs> and make sure that they, yeah. that, that they come back. Now, um, I've, I've seen glimpses of them and photographs of them online. Has there been conservation and preservation work done on them?
7: Yes, so the, the the diaries themselves have been conserved and they're kind of put into conservation folders and that as well. They've also been digitised as well, so every page of it has been... Um, Photocopied and it's put into a a, a digital um, touchscreen that is available in the museum and also in the National Archives in Dublin as well. So you can kind of literally turn the pages of history and go through each page of the five diaries as well, as well as the the physical diaries are on display as well. And so co- this this year we, sorry go ahead
2: it covers what period of his life.
7: So if the diaries go from 1918 to 1922. So it's his active years, kind of working in government and and throughout the War of Independence, that period as well. So it, it's kind of his his active years is what it covers. And um, so this year we have the 1918 and 1919 diaries, the physical ones on display, but the five diaries themselves are available in the you know, on digital, digital format as yeah. well. So you can go through all five of them, yeah.
2: And Jamie, what sort of an insight into Michael Collins' life? Do we get from
7: these diaries? So they're, they're not his personal diaries, they're his organizational diaries. So it's kind of his day to day uh, to do list essentially is what's in them. Uh, for example, say now on the 1918 diary that's on display there. The the page that we have um, open at the moment is the 10th of November 1918, which was a Sunday. And Sundays, according to his diaries anyway, seem to be reserved for kind of writing his personal letters. So he lists off the people who he has uh, written letters to on, on that day as well. So all his sisters' names are there as well. So he was writing letters out to his sisters on that day as well. Uh, and one, I suppose, a little note on that, on that day as well is armistice has been signed. So wow. you know the, the the end of World War Two. So it's just little kind of personal notes and kind of what what he has done and what he has to do is is what's in them. So it kind of gives a, a good insight into his day to day activities. Really,
2: is he seems a very organised man.
7: Yes, yeah, it, it, he seems to be. You know, everything. Down to minute details, really like that. Even just writing letters to his sisters, everything was recorded and kind of crossed off as it was completed. So, I suppose Collins is known as kind of being a, a bit of a workaholic. He achieved an awful lot in such a short period of time, and this seems to be how he did it by just literally writing everything down and crossing off as he completed it. Yeah,
2: God, he was such a loss. Uh, he, yeah, he really was. Did, did, did he keep personal diaries as well? Do you know?
7: Uh, not, that, not that we know of now. No, there is uh, a couple of more detailed uh, kind of military diaries and that that, that kind of go into the, the military side of things as well that are, that are available. I know one of them is on, uh, on display in the Collins Barracks Museum here in Cork City. Um, but uh, other than that, no, there are no, no personal mm. diaries, unfortunately. But, th-
2: but these diaries in, in particular, the ones that you have on display... He kept the they were in his pocket, was it he, he this was the diary he kept yes, with him at yes. all? Times.
7: So they're just, just little, little tiny pocket diaries. and um, you know, the a couple of them are like they're people kinda when when they see them they're kinda uh, taken aback by kinda how modern they are really, because they're like little uh, kind of Rolodex fold food yeah. folders and that as well. Like, you know, um they're, they're they're very neat little things that kind of would have went into a breast pocket and that that he as I say, when he Took money off somebody, or when he had a made a meeting, the the little book would come out of his top pocket. He'd write it into his diary and then back in it would go.
2: Yeah, I, I, I loved that last year when 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 I was looking into them was the, the fact that anyone who donated money, it was it was it, was, it yeah. was put. You know, such an honest guy. Everything was written down, and there was there was a record of it. Even though it was only in his diary, there was still a record of it.
7: Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You wonder: Did he buy those diaries himself, or did was was he given a present? It's like something you would get at Christmas, wasn't it?
7: Yeah, they're they're, they're all the same. Make. Uh, ironically, they're all Collins diaries. Is <laughs> is, is the make up diary? So it's, it's on the front of them, it's Collins yeah. diary, nineteen eighteen. Collins diary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. but So they're, they're, they look like something, I suppose, that he was gifted or given every year. And he went went out and specifically purchased himself. What,
2: and and what reaction, Jamie, are you getting from people so far to the diaries?
7: Uh, A huge reaction. Like people love to just kind of see, you know, people will go in, as I said, or digitized on the, the, um, Touch screen there as well so people will go to their birthday and see what michael collins was doing on their birthday 100 years ago little things like that and it's just as I say, it, it we can kind of give a whole museum dedicated collins and telling you about collins and that but it's just the little notes and that that really kind of give you a little bit of an insight into his personality and the type of person he was you know
2: i just love the fact you're looking at his handwriting
7: yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, I, I suppose it's, you're literally turning the pages of history, yeah, you know, you yeah. can kind of nearly touch it, you know, and, and it kind of makes it seem all that little bit more real.
2: And the exhibition is free. Do, do people need to book tickets?
7: No, no. So the, the way we have it set up is that the, the Diaries exhibition is actually in the entrance area of Michael Collins' house. So that okay. it's completely free. Anybody can come in, spend as, as long as you want, looking at it. There's no booking required. Uh, there's no fee or anything like that. There is a small fee um, of six euro for adults and um, for the rest of the museum, but for, for the Collins um, so exhibit I mean, specifically. It's, yeah, yeah.
2: It's a, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you,
7: we, we've also extended our opening hours for August as well to make it kind of give people a little bit more time so we're now open on Sundays as well and we're open extended hours so we're open at 9 and closing at 6 so just, just a little that, bit more time for people
2: to that see That's
7: seven days a week then? That's six days a week six. so we are still closed on a Monday but okay. we are open Sundays okay. now Okay, we're
2: okay August. And yeah. just give people an example of what else they can see at your museum I mean obviously people are going to go in and see the diaries but I will be saying to people pay the little fee and go in and see the rest of the museum as well What, what, what have you on display?
7: So I suppose the museum is laid out it gives you the the whole history of Collins' life from when he was a young boy living in Clonacilty all the way through to Bill and So it's looking at both his personal and his private life as well as well as like a little bit of foundation history and the history of the, the war of independence and the revolutionary years there as well uh, this year we're always continually kind of expanding and adding new little bits and pieces to it as well we have a couple of nice new um artefacts on display this year new displays as well, one of them is, is, is kind of, I suppose it's related to the diaries but later to, related to a younger part of his life, it's actually one of his school workbooks oh. um, so it's it, it's a, his it's, it's an atlas um, uh, of, you know, maps of the world yeah. and in his handwriting kind of alongside different countries and that it's talking about, you know, the populations of different countries. So it's it's essentially his geography homework. So it's it's interesting to see Collins as a, a younger man. I suppose he was about 16 when he, he had the atlas um, in London. It was that he has it when he was kind of he was doing night classes in King's College in London. Um, and studying geography and a number of other subjects as well. So that's what that's where the atlas comes from. And again, that kind of gives an insight into a younger Collins and I suppose his studies as well, similar to many other students yeah. around Ireland today, similar to what they were doing a hundred years ago.
2: And they're the kind of insights that you'll never get in the history books. That's, that's exactly that's, that's where exactly. your museum. And how busy are you, Jamie, uh, this summer?
7: It's very busy, so is it is. It? Um, it seems to kind of have continued on. Obviously, last year we were very busy with the 100th anniversary yeah. um, of, of Collins' death. Uh, but it's continued on this year, and we were as busy this year as we were last year as well. So, and um, we do kind of recommend to, to pre-book if if you have a specific time to come. It's not necessary, but if you if you want to come at a specific time, we we kind of recommend that you pre-book just in case.
2: And do you get an equal number of overseas visitors along as uh, as well as vacationers and Irish people coming in to see it.
7: Um, it it it's split about about seventy to seventy five percent of our visitors are Irish, um, okay. and then that that about twenty five percent are overseas. And of the overseas, a lot of them would have Irish heritage. So yeah. you're talking about people from from mainland Britain, and then from from America as well. A lot of them would have Irish ancestry, and kind of be be aware of Collins as well. You know.
2: And people probably growing up being told about the story and knowing about the story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Listen, uh, continue good luck to everybody at the uh, Michael Collins' house at Museum. And the diaries are there right up to and including the 31st. Is it? That's it, yeah. 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 Okay. Good luck with it, Jamie. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us on Patricia, thank you. Good bye bye. Uh, Jamie Murphy there, General Manager of the Michael Collins House uh, Museum with the diaries back in the town of Clonakilty, as they will be every uh, August. Uh, please God. Oh wait, one 18103103. Uh, Hi Patricia, there's a three-day Schlieve Lucra music workshop in Brogna Caraga in Rock Chapel. It is from Monday the 21st. Is that next? Oh, that's next Monday. August is flying by. Monday the 21st to the 23rd of uh, August and the contact number is 087 217 3472 for information and uh, booking. And their weekly session continues uh, tonight and indeed on Tuesday night, that's at 9 o'clock. A great night of local talent guaranteed and all are a welcome. That's uh, Schliev Lucra Music Workshop Road in in Rock Chapel. John Paul's taking your calls at 0818 103, 103. I can see a lot of texts have come in. We will get through all of those, I promise. you. Somebody wants to point out that the Michael Collins House Museum also has information on Taigan Asta and the 1798 Battle of the Big Cross and O'Donovan Rossa and the Fenian Movement. So I take it from that particular text. It is well, well worth a visit. Some of your texts in. Oh, glad to see John has been back on to us from Blackpool to say, Patricia, I heard you say on the radio that I was the AIB customer service? Well, I did. I answered a few security questions and I got my balance over the phone. I'm happy out. Thank you so much, Patricia. Well, I can thank you can thank your good self, John, because you contacted us. I read it out and somebody in the head of external communications in Dublin heard us talking about it. They contacted us and said, tell John to contact us and we'll sort it out. So good to know that it has been sorted out uh, for you. Hope you are keeping well. OK, 0818103103 in Doneraile, this is Jay. Hi, Patricia. Hope you're keeping well. Just wondering, when Cork County Council decide to divert traffic, why do they divert us up these narrow roads due to major roadworks going on? Works that are needed, I understand. But why are we the, why is the diverted route not? properly prepared. Hedges and grasses need to be cut back first. Blind junctions would need to be sorted out in order to give you a better view. There's such a diversion in Donorell at the moment and according to Jay in Donorell, it is quite dangerous. So while he accepts cars have to be diverted when major roadworks go on the council need to think in, think in advance and drive the diverted route and make sure that it is suitable to take the uh, extra traffic that's going to be on us. Thank you for that, Jade. A lot of commentary coming into us. Let me see if I can catch up on uh, all of it. Kicking off with Father Paddy Byrne earlier talking about aging population of priests and he is uh, fearful because there's so many older priests who he literally said dying on their feet. Uh, some of them, bless their hearts, uh, trying to administer as many of the sacraments as they can in their parishes. But what will happen is, because we don't have enough vocations as not enough young men training to become priests What's going to happen is we'll go a little bit like England and you'll be weeks waiting for a funeral because there won't be a priest available. That has caused to, as somebody to say that is really, really unfair to ask anyone to wait for a priest and a funeral service. It would be particularly distressing to elderly people. And remember, it is the elderly people who are the strong practicing Catholics. They are the ones who attend Mass regularly, if not every Sunday. Why should those people be expected to wait for a priest, especially when others, only use the church for a day out, some of them being the ones who want to remove religion from our schools. It really should be a case of prioritisation, especially when it comes to funerals. Funerals can be very distressing enough without expecting families to wait weeks. So wait 18 103 103. And then on funeral plots and cemeteries and all of that, Patricia and McCroom regarding plots in the cemetery. Yes, we were also told you can't pre by a plot. But recently, I've seen a few big plots purchased. One person, for example, buried in a plot that will take either six or nine uh, people. How has that been allowed? I suppose when you go to buy the plot, you you probably can request a larger one. I I don't know how it works but I'm assuming if you want to request a larger plot at the time that you're purchasing it because somebody's passed away, maybe that's what they're allowing. Somebody else says, I don't understand why people are wasting money on burial plots. My plan is I'm going to be cremated. No church, no priests are getting involved. A funeral home, no details on the paper. I'm keeping all the expenses down and my ashes are going to be scattered in a variety of different uh, places. Hi Patricia, enjoying your show. Thank you for that. This is Maria. Uh, I wonder please, could you put the following out? Seeing as you're talking about religion today on the programme and funerals and dying and cemeteries and all of that. This to this from Maria. I needed to get two mass cards signed recently. Now I usually go to the Augustinians. They charge €12.50 each, which includes the card. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to get into the Augustinian, so I had to go in to a local card shop and purchased two cards, which I did, €5 Euro for the two. And then went to the local priest uh, to say, could you sign my Mass card, please? And when I asked, how much do I owe for the Mass?, He advised me it's €20 for a mass. Well, Patricia, he was lucky. He didn't have a funeral as a result because I nearly had a heart attack. Is €20 now the going rate for a mass for the dead? I'd accidentally left the second card in the car. And thank God I did, or it would have cost me nearly 50 euro for two masses. Thanking you in advance, says Maria. OK, so that's going into your local church. I, I, I was always of the belief that it's a donation. So you give what you can afford. Obviously, times, they are a changing. I have a tendency, I have to say, when I'm getting mass cards, to get the pre-signed ones where you just pay the, and the money goes to somebody on the missions. I, 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 think, I think that's what I've normally been doing. But to actually go into the parish, then listen I I take it it's all got to do with the cost of living as well and parishes and churches are really really struggling because they don't have the footfall inside in the masses to give into the donations so I suppose that's one way that they can make a little bit extra and I don't know when it went up to 20 euro but is that the going rate now when you're actually going in either you meet a priest? Are you going into maybe the parish house to get a mass card signed? Is twenty euro now the going rate? Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Still getting in calls and texts about the Garda trainees who were sent home from Templemore over having tattoos. Three in total. One a thirty-two-year-old dad who I am really feeling sorry for because he gave up his job and his career to become a member of Rangarda Siakona. He has a a large tattoo of a lion on his hand and then there was two other female cadets. One had a tattoo behind her ear and the other had a tattoo on her neck. Now, how they got through all of the process of interviews and multiple assessments and it was only when they got into the training college that it was discovered. I'm still baffled uh, by that. And this one says, Patricia, if you have a birthmark on your face... Does that exclude you from joining the Gardaí? I think these three, la- well, one lad and two lassies, I think they should take them on, says this Canturk, a listener, and challenge uh, it. Yeah, and if they won, it would be of benefit, wouldn't it, to all of the future Gardaí coming up along the line. Mary says people need to get over themselves and be more concerned that a that does a good job. I don't think a tattoo will stop him or her from doing a good job at the end of the day. Dave says, hi Patricia. Why are people more upset about cops having tattoos than scumbags attacking people? Once the guard is doing their job, I really don't have an issue with whether they have a tattoo or not. That's from Dave. Tim Imado says, Patricia, on the subject of those trainee guards being sent home over tattoos, does anyone think... They might make great future candidates for undercover work. It is, says Tim, by the way, an absolutely crazy rule. And Jim, I think, sums up how a lot of people feel. Jim says, if I'm being attacked on the street and a member of Ringarda shia Siakana comes to my aid, I don't think I'd be in any way offended if I happened to notice that he had a tattoo anywhere on his body. I'd be just glad of him His or her help. And I think a lot of people, uh, Jim, will agree with you on uh, that one. And then uh, lengthy WhatsApp. Patricia, I agree with the texter earlier to your program who suggested tagging these young offenders. And this is to do with the teen who was weeping and wailing before the courts yesterday, hauled in over the assault and the robbery of one of the, the three young English lads who were over for the football uh, match last Friday in the centre of uh, Cork, um, centre Dublin City. Somebody said, And somebody suggested that they should be tagged if it's a first offence. And by the way, that young lad who was before the courts didn't have any other records, so it will be a first offence uh, for him. And so I said I agree with that uh, in uh, tagging the young, young offenders. The teen thugs are laughing at the courts. Why? Because they know they can't be sent to prison because they're before the juvenile courts and they also know there's no space in Oberstown or indeed we don't have any other young offenders institutions. Tagging them would also for the state be cheaper and surely an effective alternative to doing nothing by giving them a slap on the back of the wrist. Teens, by the way, they would hate being tagged as it would mark them out. And they don't like to be different from their peers at that age. Meanwhile, the guardie would be able to keep a track on them and equally make them sign in on every third day to their local the station. And it might teach them a little bit of self-responsibility. Furthermore, the courts must make parents understand that when these children are underage, it is their responsibility to, to ensure that their young thugs get back on the rails. Ireland has been shamed internationally by these attacks on tourists visiting our shores. Let's put robust steps in place to make a real change now. Otherwise, there will be lots of hand-wringing for a while before we're able to move on until another attack happens. And God forbid we could have another attack happens where somebody is killed. And actually, that that American man... That uh, Stephen um, uh, T- uh, Timoney, we were lucky that he wasn't killed. We really were uh, lucky. We could have been talking about a very, very different story. Always And then a text in somebody looking for help. Morning, Patricia. I wonder if you can help me, please. The Transport for Ireland is up and running around the Beira uh, Peninsula. But it looks as if you can own... They only pick up people along the road that they go on to the designated areas. But unfortunately, if you do not have your own transport, it's impossible to get to these pick-up points. Are they not allowed to pick up passengers along the roadside? It just seems to be crazy that you have to go at least three or four kilometres to board these buses. At the end of the day, it is a rural transport. I hope you can help me or who do I contact to find out about these rules. Now, what this listener is talking about is the Transport Infrastructure Ireland. It's the Local Link Cork. They've just launched a new bus and it's connecting Alihees and Kilcroham, And these Local Link buses are absolutely fantastic. I've been singing their praises for a a number of years. I mean, I have to say, we give out enough about the National Transport Authority as part of Transport for Ireland. Um, But when they get it right, they get it right. And this Connecting Ireland, their rural mobility plan really is fantastic. Now, I've looked, we've gone online and we've looked up the rules surrounding Local Link. And there is a section on it that says Door to door service. Uh, TFI Local Link door to door bus services are route based services with the added benefit where possible of collecting and dropping off passengers at their homes. Uh, the service now they do require pre-booking with your TFI local link uh, office ideally at least the day before travelling and the door-to-door bus services they operate a timetable that is obviously subject to change. Timetable frequency for door-to-door bus services can vary from daily to once a week or fortnightly but door-to-door bus services offer great peace of mind to passengers living in rural areas who might otherwise have no way to access the uh, Um, public transport and the freedom it brings. So you can get, now I'm not saying they'll absolutely guarantee but if they can't get door to door they might be able to get you as you're saying somewhere along the route uh, to pick you up but you might be lucky, they might be actually passing your door and may be able to pull up outside and toot the horn and you'll be able to get on the bus so you can get on to locallinkcork.ie is their website, lots of information actually on their website, locallinkcork.ie or they do have a telephone number, it's 027 five two seven two seven. So oh two seven five two seven two seven. So maybe give them a call explain to them where you live and if you are willing and able to pre-book and give them the day's notice they should be able to look after you and let us know how you get on but it is a wonderful, wonderful service 0818 103,
0: 103 lines are open The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie.
2: Mallow Field Club they are presenting a history walk of Glamworth Village It's with local historian Christy Roach. It's on tonight at 7. It's from Glamworth Church and it will encompass Glamworth Castle and Abbey. Refreshments afterwards in the local community hall. Bingo is on in Shambally. Moor community tonight, Tuesday, every Tuesday at 8. They have a jackpot this week of €2250. Euro. And please remember the Shambali Moor Summer Festival is taking place next weekend, Saturday and Sunday. With everybody a welcome. And the Bally de Habe Summer and Old Boats Festival continues with music and charades in the local pubs nightly. Street sports start at half past seven on a Friday with the World Turnip Race, and there'll also be a kiddies uh, disco. And Fremont Coyotes are holding their final session for the season. That's on tomorrow night, Wednesday. Music by Ellie-Marie O'Dwyer and their All-Ireland participants. And admission will be €10 tomorrow night and it does include the usual uh, cup of Chief.
0: Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurances Macroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. cmig.ie dot ie.
2: Today marks the 25th anniversary of the Omagh bombing, the bombing by dissident republican group the Real IRA on this day in 1998 was the largest single atrocity of the Troubles. 29 people, including a woman, seven months pregnant with twins, were killed and hundreds more were injured. Peter McVerry from our sister station in Northern Ireland, U105, is in Oma today. And uh, Peter joins me. Um, Good morning to you, Peter. Good afternoon as it is now. Good afternoon to you.
8: Yes, good afternoon to you.
2: And you're welcome. This is a town, Peter, that can never forget. How is the anniversary going to be marked today?
8: In, in a couple of ways. So on Sunday past, um, there was a religious service organised by the Interchurch Forum, Patricia, and that took place just across the road from where I stand now, in the memorial garden that's been constructed here in in OMA. Yeah, and that was a chance for the two governments represented, that the British and Irish governments, the Irish government were represented by the Junior Minister for Europe and Defence, Peter Burke TD, and the Northern Ireland Office was represented by Lord Jonathan Keane, who were there. That was just maybe a one hour ceremony, Patricia that took place on, on Sunday afternoon around three o'clock, and that was reflective, uh, featuring music, and there was wreath laying down there at that memorial garden. Um, I'm just looking at it now. It's uh, 31 spikes in memory of the 29 people and the two unborn children who died in the explosion. 31 spikes have been erected, and each of those has got a mirror on the top of a Patricia to encourage reflection. Today is a little bit more private. In the OMA Library, just as we speak, and in the next half hour, the families of those who wish... We'll be gathering for a private ceremony. And then there's a slightly more public event at the site of the bomb on Market Street here in Oma, just around three. A ten past three was the time of the explosion 25 years ago. And around then, there will be a wreath laying and there will be some prayers as well on Market Street in the centre of the town.
2: And because, Peter, so many people died or were injured, this was an atrocity really that affected the whole community. I mean, I take it everybody knew somebody who died or somebody who was injured. Everybody was affected.
8: did. Yeah, well, then you, you have to remember, in the context of when it came as well, it came, it came uh, four months after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, three months after more than 70% of the population of Northern Ireland had, um, had, had voted to accept the Good Friday Agreement and to set up the institutions that are now... Stormont, albeit you know not up and running at the moment and people thought that that the troubles were behind us and then after all of that we have the largest single atrocity in the history of the troubles more people killed than in any other incident including uh, we had um, you know it didn't discriminate on the grounds of religion or or of age we had three young boys in Donegal who who were killed who were here to visit the Ulster American Folk Park we had a young um, teenage student who was here from Spain as well you know, when we had just the the, the the breakdown of those who were killed. It was a if if you think of the time, Patricia, in terms of the, the time of the week and the time of day, and I'm looking at it now as I drive into Oma in the last hour, you know, it was the end of a carnival festival a week that happens here. You know, in 1998 it was two weeks before the schools went back mm-hmm. and i can see kids walking past me now as we speak with their mom going to get their new school shoes and their uniforms and mm-hmm. a spare power trousers. you know my own kids were doing it in uri in the town where i was yesterday with their mom and those people were in on that afternoon doing that simple random family act that everybody needs to do every year and, and yet the real ira drove into the middle of a small market town in county Tyrone, and planted a five hundred pound car bomb in the back of a red Vauxhall cavalier on a market street on the town. And if you remember any of the the, the investigations afterwards, Patricia, um, you know, it, it seems that, you know, not all of the people who died had to die because there was confusion on the day about where exactly the bomb was. Some of the warnings were unclear. Um the the, the police evacuated people away from the courthouse which they thought was the intended target and down into the middle of the town. But they brought them, sadly, closer. They walked them
2: into it. Yeah, they walked them you know, yeah.
8: and, and that's one of the things that will be looked at now. There's a the family of campaigned since 1998 for an inquiry. It was only in February of this year. Hey, 24 uh, years Have
2: now. you any, because that's what I want to add, I talk to you about, was this inquiry that was, you know, finally, finally um, announced this independent statutory inquiry earlier in the year. Why has yeah. that taken 25 years?
8: A mixture of uh, reasons that it, it, um, they had hoped to get it sooner. And I think it was 20, was it 15 or 16 when Theresa Villiers of the Conservative Party was Northern Ireland Secretary had said no uh, to it. And they had felt that that that, that it, wasn't, um, it wasn't needed. Not that it wasn't necessary, but that it wasn't needed. At the time, you know, a lot, there were warnings and some people knew in the week beforehand that there was going to be a bomb in OMA, most likely on that weekend. Some of those people were double agents. Uh, there is a lot of contention about whether or not that information was passed on whether it was acted upon whether somebody given the political circumstances that were in at the time took the decision you know not to share that in order to protect the identity of an agent and those are some of the terms of reference that lord uh, hutton who has been appointed uh, sorry lord turnbull has been appointed for this tribunal and he was actually here in oma last week meeting the families and asking them what they thought was important to find out in this. And the, the key questions that they want to, to know, not just from the British government, but also from the Irish government, because the, the car that was used was stolen in County Monaghan and was driven across uh, the border. And those the, those who perpetrated the acts were away back across the border within within an hour. And also the American government, who it's thought potentially might have some information to shed on what exactly was known in intelligence services. That's the main thing the family want to know. In the run-up to it, could it have been prevented? And then also they want to know, you know, Nuala O'Lone, who you may know was the former police officer yeah, here yeah. in Northern Ireland. I, I managed to speak to now Baroness O'Lone on Sunday at the memorial service. And I asked her, she did a very intensive and extensive report back in 2007 on OMA. And her contention is that the very first investigation into OMA, the first week, 10 days and fortnight, was shockingly handled by the RUC at the time. And that so many evidential opportunities were missed. So that will be part of it as well, you know. But the difficulty is that we're now we're now 25 years on. But if you remember things like you know Bloody Sunday, which is even further back in the history of Northern Ireland. Now, if there are to be uh, convictions, yeah, the span of time means that many of those who were involved and who may have stood trial for it have now passed away. Mm. By the time we get through an inquiry and then any investigation and in any court case, you know, even more people connected either as as, as defendants or as as witnesses. You know could could have um, could have passed away, and that 's not even to talk about the legacy that 's currently sitting or the the legislation that 's currently sitting with the British government about dealing with trouble 's legacy and dealing with amnesties and dealing with evidence, which would mean that 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 um, some of those involved, would never um, stand trial.
2: Yeah, and it, like, it won't bring anybody back and it won't replace broken, shattered lives but that search for the full truth is just so, so important sure. uh, to both the families and the victims. Uh, listen, uh, Peter, we appreciate you taking uh, time out. I know how busy you are today so we really appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. Thank you for that. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Peter McVary, uh, who is with our sister station in Northern Ireland, U105 today, remembering this day. And of all of the atrocities in Northern Ireland, it's one of those days that just really, really stands out in my mind. I know exactly where I was and where I was sitting when I heard. I didn't realise how bad it was going to be, but I knew that something had happened in in Northern Ireland um, on this day uh, 25 uh, years ago uh, may all of those people who uh, passed away may they continue to rest in peace but we think very much of their families and the, the hundreds who were left with devastating injuries I mean, you could see when Peter was talking about that of that lovely event that took place on last Sunday they spoke I saw on the news they spoke with some of the survivors and you could see particularly the one woman who was a husband and wife but you know she every time she looks in the mirror she bears the scars on her face so she'll never forget this Day.
0: You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And
2: something we can all do uh, in our lives—a little bit more kindness—and that's what Joe Heffernan is going to be talking to us about today. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Good
9: afternoon, Patricia.
2: Kindness. I, I mean, I often say that when, particularly when I see some maybe some comments coming in that sometimes can be a little bit unkind, I normally, you know, end it by saying, just try to be kind. It's yeah.
7: It's
2: it's such an... Easy thing to do, and it costs you nothing.
9: No, but you know, kindness could be the saviour of the world, and um, because God knows there isn't too much of it going around on the um, on the on the larger scale in life, like you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and when when you are kind to people, there's a bounce back to the person giving the kindness as well, isn't there?
9: There's a really big one. Um, I was at a workshop. Go oh God! lot of years ago out was the Dr David Hamilton, if anybody wanted to look him up to do with kindness um and uh, he was talking about the uh, hormone oxytocin and um he was saying that um uh, that doing a kind deed being kind um uh, generates the uhtis often called the love hormone um oxytocin. Um, in 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 us humans, and that, that gives a nice little glow, so whatever about the, the the benefactor at the other end of our kindness, we gain too, and mm. we gain quite a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, and I know I love when, you know, those sort of those random acts of kindness that come from a, a stranger. I love when listeners contact us, you know, if they publicly want to thank somebody who went above and beyond. But I love yeah. when it's the randomness, you know, when a stranger reaches out and, and yeah. helps somebody. I'm always hoping that the stranger has heard us mentioning them just to you know the effect that it had on, on the on the other person. And, yeah. and then you want to talk about some of the benefits. There are benefits yeah. of, of kindness. One, for example, is... Better relationships.
9: Well, obviously, I'd say that. Um, you know, when we're kind to people, um, you know, they, they, they more than likely will be kind to us. Um, uh, so that like uh, even a smile, a happy word, a compliment can go a long way in making a better day for all concerned. For the giver and the receiver, we'll say um, empathy and warmth. They don't cost anything. But they just make the world a better place, if even for a minute or an hour or a day. That, um, I read somewhere back along there, um, some lady or some person forgot their purse or something at the supermarket and, um, no, it wasn't a major, major, major purpose uh, purchase, but... Um, the person behind them, they were going to be putting back their litre of milk, etc., etc., and the person behind them paid for the couple of things that the person uh, was uh, shopping. Yeah, um,
2: Actually, you know, I remember, said, yeah,
9: a random act of kindness. Yeah,
2: I know a number of years ago at Christmas uh, we set up a hidden camera I think it was John Paul, I remember, I think it was a supermarket down in West Cork we did it in uh, but we sent in um, a guy an actor, uh, we sent him into the supermarket and the idea was he went into the checkout ahead of somebody and he was short, now it was only a couple of euro he was short, so he was standing at the checkout like counting out his money real- realising he was short Two or three euro, whatever it was. Mm. And the whole idea was, was to see what would the person behind uh, do. And everybody jumped in and, and we were filming awesome. them on a secret yeah. camera. And the idea was then we gave them gift tokens or something like that. But it was just gorgeous. And I remember afterwards, we, we, we would film um, the, the, the crew, would film the person afterwards and said, Oh, look, it was just a couple of euro. I didn't, he looked embarrassed. I was trying, to, I was hoping someone would do the same for me. But it was, yeah. just, it was just lovely to see it. It was, it was lovely to see it. Um, yeah. And then it, it, being optimistic, I mean, that very much ties in with kind people doesn't it
9: it does and um uh, you know uh, uh, it's been proven again like to contribute to 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 better health and um, better healing power um i'm going for a couple of um, investigations now starting tomorrow um uh, in a, in a hospital and um you know i'm well i'm trying very hard anyway to be optimistic um and uh, that will decrease whatever negative emotions um would would there would 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 follow on for that and um uh, therefore um i i i mean my anxiety and uh, maybe a bit of depression uh, would uh, would um would uh, would lessen on account of that. Uh, Ken, who has an extremely serious illness, the cancer, and um, you know his texts uh, and etc. and his phone calls to us, even though he's going through heavy um, uh, chemo and uh, radiation um, at the, at these times, um, would always be that bit upbeat. And um, you know we 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 often feel that maybe he's um protecting us from um uh, you know he he's always doing fairly well, but um I think that helps him as it definitely helps us you yeah, know
2: yeah yeah, and he obviously has that optimistic um outlook
9: yeah yeah, and I mean when we are optimistic like that and and um and and when we find afterwards that there was reason for our optimism. Well, then, um, uh, we, we're, we're grateful. Um, and we've often said, um, uh, you and me, um, uh, and indeed John Paul, about, um, uh, you know, the, the benefits of gratitude in our lives. And, um, uh, you know, some people actually keep a gratitude diary. And they'd jot down a few things um, each night. You um, know, what would it take, um, 20 seconds Um for three things
2: that they would be grateful for. You and you can even it, I mean, just, I, 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 like, I, I wouldn't go to the effort now I wouldn't I, of writing yeah, it down, but yeah. I, I do, I just do it in my mind. I try at the yeah, end of every too. day as I've me fallen too. off to sleep to look back and say, OK, what can I be grateful for today? And it can be the smallest thing. It can be the sun came out for that one half hour that I was out in the garden and I got to feel, you know, sun on my bones. It can be the smallest thing. It can be someone randomly sent me a text that made me smile. It might have been something I watched on TV, it might have been a meal I ate or, you know, they can be the, you know, there are times when you'll be, you'll have the big ones where, you know, if you're away on holidays or you're out with friends and you go for a nice meal, but they'll be the bigger ones. But just on the ordinary humdrum days, there's always something that you can be thankful for.
9: Yeah, well, as as I lie in bed at night, I mean, my usual um, few things uh, would be I'm in a nice warm bed and um, uh i'd be optimistic that hopefully i'd have a good night's sleep but in a nice warm bed i, I had a couple of meals during the day so i i i, I had food and um and uh, and i was in out of um the the wind and rain yeah. and um you know they they there are things that maybe we take for granted, but sure, they're huge. And there are so many thousands of people in the world now
2: that don't who have don't that. Have to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you look at, God, the poor people in Hawaii and what they're going through at the moment. You know, they lost it everything. Awful. It's just yeah. dreadful. It's just dreadful. So we, yeah. we have a lot to be thankful for. And, oh, yeah. and, and there, I mean, there are surveys that show people who live like that. If there, are, there are benefits from it.
9: Well, we you know, we're not what we'll call we, when you're in that kind of uh, mood or thinking um, uh, area, um uh, you know you have increased energy. We, you wouldn't feel like as they say taking to the bed, um uh, sleeping better and um, and and it can actually help with physical pain. Um so yeah, there are big benefits um to Kindness and gratitude huge benefits that um uh, that that enhance our daily lives indeed
2: yeah. and of course if you know if you are that optimistic person, you know you're a positive thinker
9: yeah yeah, um uh, you know I won't say I would do it all the time at all, but the odd time I would say it you know. I think today is going to be a good day and um, the thing I like to say to myself um, fairly regularly, not in a kind of a boastful way, but um, I will do my best mm. and at night I I did my best. Now, my best might have not been good enough for someone, that's fair enough, I mean, but as long as I can genuinely say, look, I did my best, um, well, that... Um, well that'll have to do, um uh, for me. Um if I do my best I can do no more than my best. Um but I, I would like to um I, I w- I would like to kind of um say that to myself um as a little bit of an affirmation for my day um and and a bit of um you know positive um projection uh, for the day. I I'll, yeah. I'll do my best.
2: Yeah, because there's a lot of people, uh, many people believe like in the in positive visualisation. Now, I I would have a friend of mine who was a huge, huge fan of positive visualisation and she started visualising she wanted a career change and I thought she was going way over the top in what she, was, what she was looking for and she was determined and she said, no, I'm going to do it and I swear to God within 12 months exactly what she had outlined, exactly what her plans were. Uh, now, she put herself in so that she would be in line but... It was all down to this positive visualization. She was constantly reaffirming it in her mind of where she was going to be, how she was going to get there. It was it was incredible, and there are a number of people who really swear by that positive visualization.
9: Absolutely, and I used to have an old saying um, many many years ago. Um, you know, pray for potatoes, but grab a hoe. Um, <laughs> in other words, like you know. We 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 need to help out um,
2: help the powers
9: that be upstairs um, with a bit of action. Um, but I I hear what you're saying. But that person obviously would have sent her emails, would have uh, made her phone calls, um, but would have visualised a successful outcome. I've noticed with some of the golfers and the professionals there. Um, uh, especially uh, a person who really seems to be into that would be a fellow Jason Day, yeah, an Australian guy. Yeah, and um, he he looks up ahead, he closes his eyes for maybe let me think about it, um, maybe five or six or seven seconds, and he visualizes um, the the shot that he's about to take, and uh, and then he goes ahead and uh, he does that on every golf shot. No, um I, I don't want to deviate from our idea um, about uh, the visualisation, but I used to notice as well with Ronaldo that he would do the bit of deep breathing before a taking of, yeah, a free. Yeah, there's,
2: there's a lot of sports people do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot, and, and I think it's all part of the psych- the sports psychology that's that's uh, come on so much. And then uh, be, uh, being kind, you, it can enhance our self esteem. That's a positive message.
9: Of course, it does. Because if you think about it, if we're kind to someone, well, we're going to give ourselves a little uh, pat on the back as well. Um, we, we, you know, um, isn't it so much nicer at the end of the day? to think that we were kind uh, to person A, or B, or C, or all three of them, uh, than to have had, you know, um, a resentful word, a harsh word. Um, Now, let's not get it wrong. Like, I mean, there also is, and we've spoken about it, assertiveness, where, um, you know, that that, that we will stand up um, politely and, uh, you know, kindly, uh, for um, for what we feel we need to say or what we need to do, that's fair enough. But like, it's so much better at the end of the day if we were kind than if we were well unkind.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and your 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 final uh, message is uh, that that glass half full rather than half empty.
9: Absolutely. Absolutely, and to try and not ruminate too much about the past to try and get over um uh resentment and regret there are they are two words that um, they're not helpful in our day um uh and you know everyone will have their own way of trying to deal with uh, with the past but um and I know it's kind of live people might say with the kind of toxic uh, positivity, uh, you can't change the past. Um, Okay, but I mean, we can learn to deal with it a little bit better, maybe, than we have been. And that would be to our great, great benefit. And that sometimes um, can involve a bit of, um, or a lot of, forgiveness.
2: Yeah don't yeah. don't don't let it consume you. Okay, listen yeah. have a lovely week. Be kind everybody. That's our message from Joe. Have a lovely week and we'll chat to you next uh, Tuesday. Thank you for Thanks a million. that is uh, Joe Heffernan who is a very kind man I can vouch for that. His number is 086 Can I catch up on some of your texts coming in on the mass card and the woman getting charged the 20 euro for a priest to sign a mass card If you buy a card from a shop says somebody the priest signed ones you can get them for as little as 6 euro That priest saw the woman saw the woman coming says uh, one texter Um, Michael says, Patricia, mass cards, I get mine signed by my local parish priest. He's quite happy with €10 per mass. Now I do remember a number of years ago, you actually did an interview with a retired priest who had written a book about his experiences in ministry and he said when you asked him how things will change in years to come and how did he feel it would go, he said you'll have a priest being driven around by a driver from parish to parish doing masses on a rota basis. He said funerals will take place in a central church and they'll all go to the cemetery with lay people doing the rest and groups of christenings will happen and here we are, it's all coming to pass with the groupings of parishes priests are moving around and removals are already gone sadly That has caused a lot of upset to families. If now we're going to end up talking about having to wait weeks for a funeral, believe me, it will finish the church. That's from Michael. On kindness that we spoke with Joe. Hi, Patricia and Joe. Why why are the youth of today so rude and unkind? They never say, excuse me, please or thank you. Is it that we live in a society where everything is given in an instant and people don't have time to be kind and respect? that's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you, and the sun is shining. He'll carry you through the afternoon. I'll talk to you tomorrow at 10 on the 9. Patricia Messenger. very good afternoon.
0: Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.